thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damian Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to the Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. I'm Damian Kristoff. And this is the Wellness Guy Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness into our lives. Damon, you and me, alone, without Brett again, but yeah. man, he's, he's missing out. He's I don't want to uh, take too much time here because I want to get straight into this uh, interview. So uh, let's, let's get to it, Damon. Who do we have here? Surprise, surprise. Uh, LT, this is, this is probably, without doubt, in the last 250 plus episodes, this is my most excited interview. I'm so excited about this interview. I, um, I had the pleasure of listening to this man speak at the uh, International Congress of Natural Medicine that Metagenics put on a number of years ago. And at that event, um, this incredible gentleman presented information regarding gluten sensitivity and non-celiac disease related gluten sensitivity, which naturopaths had been talking about forever, um, but we didn't have the research. And then in the year 2000, um, Alessio Fasano presented this information about about zonulin, and and so we kind of we were all so excited and all blown away. And now Alessio is coming back to Australia to present with the Bioceuticals Symposium in a couple of weeks' time in April, and uh, and we've managed to snag him for thirty minutes. And and today we're going to be talking with a man who's won more awards than you could tattoo on your on your first arm. You have to go to your second arm. Um, he's leading the world. He's an Italian researcher based in Harvard University in the United States. He's leading the world in gluten sensitivity research and he's blowing the minds of millions and, and curing people of their disease. He's amazing. So I just want to welcome Alessio Fasano to the Wellness Guys. Welcome, Alessio. Thank you so much, guys, for having me on your show. Alessio, um, you started off as a pediatric gastroenterologist and, um, and obviously you went further into your studies and further into your profession and um, and then, of course, you, you, you've moved very much into a specialty which is almost as contentious as vaccination in this country. You know, if we talk about gluten sensitivity, we get people jumping on top of us. If anyone mentions the word vaccination, people jump on top of you. So this one, gluten, how did you get into gluten research and, and, and why is it so important? Well, actually, to tell you the honest truth, it was by default and not choice. I trained at the University of Naples in Italy uh, as a medical student, and I have to be in the mecca of uh, celiac disease, and therefore that was my first exposure to gluten in the gluten world. Um, when I ended up to move to the United States, uh, you know, I was building my uh, level of interest, and as a matter of fact, I was trying to get away from gluten and to be more focused on other kind of uh, research that was really intriguing to me at that time, uh, particularly how microbes cross-talk with us. Um, now it's very fashionable to talk about microbiome, but at that time it was really, uh, you know, the dark side of the moon, so to speak, of science. Um, and in doing that, surprise, surprise, uh, gluten stepped into the spotlight again, uh, because, you know, in studying uh, this crosstalk, I realized that uh, gluten uh, used the same language, a very similar language that bacteria, microorganisms, they talk with us to communicate and do stuff that eventually on a specific genetic backgrounds can lead to clinical outcomes that we call now, you know, gluten-related uh, disorders, including celiac disease, with allergy, and then what you mentioned to be non-celiac gluten, um, sens non -non gluten sensitivity. 
you know, one of the key things is like gluten is such a big topic right now. And celiac is just, you know, in the forefront of, you know, and a lot of media at the moment. Um, but for those of us, like, you know, just because we got a, you know, a wide range of audience members. So let's kind of write down to the beginning. What is celiac disease? And, uh, you know, and how does it relate to leaky gut? Because that's those are the two terms that are kind of honestly, um, people kind of know about and throw around. But I don't think anybody really truly understands a lot of people actually really understands an degree. So if you don't mind me, just start with the basics, and then we'll kind of get into specifics into the zonulin and, and how it affects us. So celiac disease right now, um, it's it's perceived to be truly a, 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 an autoimmune disease <clears throat> and one of a kind autoimmune disease. Uh, so it's like having diabetes, uh, MS, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, um, you know that kind of stuff. What is uh, interesting though is that while the recipe is the same, so you have to have genetic predisposition and then be exposed to environmental trigger that is mismanaged by your immune system because it's genetic predisposition. So the immune system that typically defend you against these attackers start to attack your own body. Um, so the, the recipe is the same. Uh, celiac disease has peculiarities. Uh, so, for example, the genetics, like many other autoimmune diseases, there are some genes that, you know, seems to be very frequent uh, that you, you, you have to have to be genetically at risk. But in celiac disease, these genes that we call the HLA genes, uh, specific DQ2, DQ8, they have an unbelievable penetrance. So in other words, pretty much all people with celiac disease, they have to have either or both of these genes. And we don't have similar situation in any other autoimmune disease. There would be probably, you know, penetrance between 50 and 75%, but in celiac disease, you have to have 98% of these genes. Uh, 98% plus the people, they have this gene. So without those, pretty much, you can't develop the disease. The other and most remarkable peculiarity is that while the environmental trigger for all the other autoimmune diseases are known, we know for sure that gluten, this strange protein that we were named before, uh, that is the most abundant protein in several grains, in wheat, including wheat, barley, and rye, is the instigator. And when the immune system sees this molecule, it triggers a chain of events that eventually leads to uh, you know, the damage of the intestine and the symptoms that are typical of celiac disease. Uh, a third element of this recipe that we were totally unaware that we learned through celiac disease and was a reason of major conventions that there still is of debates in the scientific community is the loss of barrier function of leaky guts. Um, because, you know, these two worlds, i.e. the genes that live in our body, and these enemies that live outside of our body, at some point they need to physically interact. And this is, under normal circumstances, prevented by these barriers that defend us from the environment. You know, the skin, the airways, and probably the most important and sophisticated and, and, and largest interface is the intestine. And when this barrier works well, large molecules like gluten, they, they have no chance to come in, in our body. So <clears throat> it's through cilia that we learn there is at the beginning a functional problem with this barrier, uh, you know, uh, property of the gut that allows this large molecule to sneak into our body. And that's what really starts the entire process. And, and that's how we end up, uh, by the way, to discover zonulin, the molecule that mo modulate permeability in the gut. I'm so glad to hear that story again because it's it's not a difficult story to actually explain to people. It's not it's not tough or hard to sit down with somebody and explain that. 
But what's amazing, Alessio, is the um, is the resistance to this information. You know, I, I don't think ever before I've ever seen such resistance to scientific rigor and scientific studies and research as this as this particular um, t topic actually has created. You know, even last night I was speaking at an event where I had a very very overweight man who was the head of um, a medical department at one of our most prestigious hospitals in Melbourne come up to me and he's had very little nutrition um, training in his whole life. I've been studying and, and working with nutrition for 25 years. He came up to me, um, head of his field, so very, very intelligent, but said to me, I agree with everything you said, except I don't agree with you about gluten. Why are you telling people to be gluten-free? And, and I said, I'm not telling people to be gluten-free. What I'm saying is that gluten does X, Y, Z. And he said, well, the, what you're doing is dangerous. And I thought to myself, and I, and I said to him, how can you say that when the research is there? He said, where's the research? And I said, Alessio Fasani says, oh, yes, I know Alessio's re research. And I said, well, obviously you don't know the research because it's unequivocal. Are you finding there's a lot of resistance to your research around the world? Well, you know, um, I don't think that this is peculiar in my research. I have to say that, again, there are two ways to uh, research to advance, is the incremental research. Hello? Yep, you over here. I'm sorry, because I thought that we lost it. So there is the incremental research, in other words, that you formulate your hypothesis, and you try to go from point A to point B, and then C and D, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and this is the research in which your peers, they see where you start, they see where you're going. And it's easier to be accepted or to at least follow what you're trying to you know achieve in terms of your research endeavor and then there is the transformational science the one that you meant to go from a to b and now you find yourself in z that is an unexplored territory somewhere never been explored before nobody's been there and that's much more complicated really to accept and, you know, uh, most of the time when you go to these unexplored territories, dead end, that's the end of the story. But if you end up to stumble in something that is really, you know, transformational science, uh, then, you know, you have a shift of paradigm. And that's pretty much what this zonal story and, and permeability impairment is it, it's, it's out to be. Uh, it's, it's really a, a situation that is really changing the dogmas, the, 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 the basis, uh, the, the cornerstone of our understanding of immunology. If you talk with anybody, um, classical immunologists, and you say, you know what, there is the need to have a continuous stimulus to have autoimmunity, they will say, you are nuts, you are out of your mind. Uh, autoimmunity is well known uh, that has to be a place in which you start and you cannot go back from. So yeah. it's an out of is a one-way street. That's a dogma, ask, isn't it? That's just that's just dogma. That's a, a central belief that they just can't budge from. And, and that's exactly the point. That where did you read this? Well, that's the dogma. Well, again, dogma are meant to be challenged. And you know, the rationale they are put on the table are very, very simple. Who runs the show of an immune response, i.e., the immune system, is being engineered. 2.5 million years ago for a single job to protect us against the only enemy that can kill us beside predators that will lead us, i.e. infections. 
and was built to be turned on when we under attack by producing collateral damage that we call inflammation that will create a very, very unfriendly environment for these bacteria that want to kill us. But of course, you know, when you have inflammation, you pay a price that we're most definitely willing to pay if we save the big three project, I, uh, our own body that will survive these attacks and will not die. But definitely inflammation is a price that we pay. The, the reason why, you know, autoimmunity does not make any sense, evolutionary speaking, is why you want to keep this on unless you're continuously under attack. If indeed there was an intrinsic defect, the immune system that would be stuck in this on position, evolution will have eliminated the people that will be eventually affected by autoimmune diseases. So the only way to explain the unexplicable is that the immune system is in a continuous attack and therefore is continuing unleashing inflammation to protect us with the wrong means, the wrong signal, but that's the case. And seated disease is the paradigm of this concept. Matter of fact, when you go gluten-free, so you subtract the enemy that is attacking your body to which the immune system reacts, the immune system shuts down, the symptoms will go away, the biomarkers of autoimmunity will go back to normal, and the autoimmune damage, i.e. the damage of the intestine, heals. And when I put this case of seated disease to classical immunologists, they say, oh, this is not an autoimmune disease. Why? Because it's curable and cannot be. Well, I said, you know, if you look at the immunological basis, is as a TH17 response, has this kind of rings and bells that suggest that we're talking about autoimmunity. And I said, well, maybe then that's an, an abnormal, uh, unusual autoimmune disease. I said, well, define normal. A normal that cannot be cured. So it's a, a self-perpetuating, you know, prophecy, if you wish. Why? Because they think about dogmas. But if you think rationally, the immune system that turns on and doesn't turn off to attack ourselves, therefore to be detrimental, it makes no sense whatsoever. It was built for other purposes, and therefore it's only logical that if you find a way to stop this continuous attack or interplay between the instigator and, you know, the uh, host, uh, then you can stop our immunity. With celiac disease, you achieve this by going gluten-free, and then we prove that you can do the same in other conditions like type 1 diabetes, at least an animal model, by, you know, eventually stop this continuous access of this instigator in our body by stopping the zoning pathway. So a question is, is that, you know, obviously we're seeing more and more of these problems occurring in, in, in people. Is it the question I would have, I'm sure people would be asking is, is this always been, is gluten has always been a problem or has also uh, been triggered by the way we have processed food differently? Has something changed in the food chain um, that caused us to have any, uh, I don't know, I don't know, call it an epidemic, but causing uh, some sort of chain reaction that actually has affected to where we are today? I believe that the gluten-related disorders really are experiencing the same things that we're experiencing with all the other chronic inflammatory diseases, i.e. we're in the midst of an epidemics. Look at asthma, look at MS, look at neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's <clears throat> and, and, you know, all the autoimmune diseases, of course. 
And, and again, this is the result that we're changing the environment too fast for us to adapt. Um, for celiac, again, we have the hint that the gluten being the instigator, that something, something may have been changing here. Um, uh, you know, again, we thought that maybe that the quantity of gluten that we're eating is more than in the past. The quality is different because they've been engineered. Uh, that our awareness what gluten can do to you is increasing. Therefore, we see what already was there, but now is is more visible. Um, and, and again, people have been looking into you know what is the rational of this epidemics. I can tell you with great level of confidence that definitely it's not that we eat more gluten, because if anything, um, you know, gluten containing grains, if anything, there's been a reduction of you know a, a, you know. A, a, annual intake, um, the um, quality of gluten has changed very little in the past few centuries, at least, when we've really seen this, you know, huge epidemics. However, however, many other factors have been changing during the same period of time. Uh, for example, uh, the way that we handle, you know, um, gluten products. Um, you know, um, we know that, unfortunately, gluten is a strange protein that we cannot completely digest. Uh, we didn't evolve to eat gluten as a species since, you know, it, it was introduced only 10,000 years ago with the residential agriculture. Therefore, we don't have digestive enzymes to completely dismantle that. The best thing we can do is to make this in fragments, what we call peptides. And if indeed these peptides, they can come through um, um, because of a loss of better function, you know, under specific circumstances in a specific genetically predisposed host that can trigger some immune responses that will lead to the problem that we were discussing before. Um, the way that bread was made only two generations ago was an overnight process. So you have to take the flour, water, and yeast and overnight make, you know, bread. During this overnight process, the yeast enzymes that have the capability to dismantle gluten toxic elements that we are not able to do, give us a, a final product with a very low load of toxic, you know, fragments are still intact. Now this process takes two hours and therefore we don't give the time to yeast enzymes to dismantle this load of uh, toxic elements. So even if we eat overall less gluten, and even if gluten is the same that was two or three centers ago, the load of toxic elements is increasing dramatically because of the way that we handle it. The other thing, pesticides. Um, you know, maybe the pesticides on this, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, plants may play a role. Um, you know, and again, most likely they do that by modifying the microbiome, and we know very well that the modification of the gut microbiome change the behavior of the immune system. That more belligerent and so even if you're exposed to the same load of gluten you have a more crispy response that can lead to problems um you know again um, i can go on and on and on but you know i believe that again it's the overall picture that we evolved for you know hundreds and thousands of years to eat and behave in a certain way and we dramatically change our lifestyle in the past you know two or three uh, you know, generations, and, and we've not been able to do this in a slow pace, so we were not able to adapt, you know, as a species to this dramatic change in the environment. That's um, that's probably really good news for a lot of people because that'll give them some hope because in maybe five or 6,000 years, they might actually evolve to be able to digest gluten. So if they just hang around long enough, they might be all right. What do you think about that one, Alessio? You know, that's a possibility, but once again... <laughs> 
I believe the best bet that we have is not to go back to be caveman and, you know, embrace that lifestyle, but, you know, be savvy yes. the way that we really uh, live our lives. Um, you know, again, uh, um, I, I, I believe that I would not say anything shockingly, um, you know, new uh, that, you know, again, uh, the way that particularly the first three years of life, our, you know, infants evolve. Um, you know, it's so different now that compared to the past. Uh, first of all, you know, you may be born by C-section. It's not the natural way that we're supposed to be born. Uh, we may be born very early, so we're premature, and therefore we will eventually survive where in the past there was no chance. We've been exposed to a wealth of, uh, you know, infections and um, antibiotics that never happened before. Um, you know, uh, we've been fed and we feed our babies stuff that we call food, but we're not sure if what it is because we don't prepare that. Somebody else prepare for you and you just buy in the tray and give to your, you know, kids. I, I mean, all this, it will be surprising if we don't have an impact on the fact that now we are more susceptible uh, to serious disease or any chronic inflammatory diseases in which you have, as a result, an immune system that was supposed to defend us uh, against this enemy that now is placing the threshold of the bar to unleash inflammation so low that even from meniscal stimulus, um, inflammation is, will be unleashed and therefore in a specific genetic background you can develop these problems. Yeah, you're raising amazing points and you know very interesting points. And Alessio, I just wanted to ask you uh, at this point, because um, it's known that gluten triggers the autoimmune disease, celiac disease, is there the potential that there may be a link to um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity to other autoimmune diseases whereby the initial triggering of the immune system results in then autoimmune attack on other organs within the body? For example, the thyroid gland or the joints within the body um, could also be related to heart disease or maybe multiple sclerosis. Is, is there, are you finding other research around that? Yeah, I mean, you know, for serious disease, we have undisputable evidence. Uh, for all these other conditions um, and situations that gluten can trigger, including non serious gluten sensitivity, and other morbidity in which, you know, uh, there's been at least a potential link between gluten and the triggering these conditions. There are what lawyers will so will call circumstantial evidence, but not final proof. So what we know, again, as I was telling you, and I'm very convinced about this, is when we are exposed to gluten, we all, we react like that we are under attack with the microorganism. So we unleash the same machinery to defend us. So... <clears throat> what we call the innate immune response that involves, you know, uh, release zonulin and therefore increased gut permeability, activation in the immune system with some, you know, specific, you know, response from the host. Now, the vast majority of us will have no consequences because the immune system has been trained to really to deal with this. And therefore, this will become clinically silent. But there is a, a group of individuals that eventually when they have this response, again, it's present in everybody. So you eat gluten, it's only partially digested. Some of the fragment will instruct cells to resolve. This will increase gut permeability. Stuff will come through. Now, the destiny from now on really depends who you are. If you're genetically disposed, let's say, to develop food allergies, that's where you're going to end up to develop. 
mainly because gluten helped to open these doors. Um, if you are destined to develop an autoimmune disease, you will develop that autoimmune disease. Uh, if you're destined to develop, um, you know, neurodegenerative disease, that will end up to de develop. Develop cancer, that's what is going to be your final destination. And again, in this example, not randomly, but these are all examples in the literature that have been linked to zoning uh, upregulation. So autoimmune diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, and, and tumoral diseases. And again, um, you know, definitely note that gluten can be one of the triggers to release zolomon. Is that the only trigger? No. Uh, we know now also that in imbalanced microbiome, so dysbiosis can do that. So it's not always that, you know, again, is um, gluten that by definition has to be the only instigator of this. Is zolomon the only molecule that regulates gut permeability, I will be shocked if that's the case. Most likely there are going to be others. We don't know them yet, but there are going to be others. So, uh, you know, what? what is the point that I'm trying to make? Um, that while it's undisputable that gluten does this stuff and can lead you to the final destination of thyroid problems, uh, you know, diabetes and so on and so forth, would be a major mistake to generalize this by saying everybody that developed these problems, they do that through gluten. Um, you know, these are very complex final destinations. How you got there can be very different from one individual to another. So the future, in my humble opinion, and the challenge for us is what we call precisional or personalized medicine to understand who really take the gluten path to get to that final destination and then target that particular group specifically to try to eliminate gluten seed if this will be beneficial. Well, that's just amazing because I, I love what you just sort of summarized there at the end is that it's not just the one trigger. It's, it obviously is one major trigger, but also triggered by many different things uh, all working together that causes this whole chain reaction. Um, so what are the most susceptible people uh, that in your opinion and your research has shown that are more susceptible to this, uh, to, to, to having these, uh, this chain reaction occurring? Well, most definitely, family members of people that already have gluten-related disorders are definitely at risk. Uh, there are some specific genetic signatures <coughs> uh, that we see now recurring over and over again. For example, you know, uh, zonulin is a is a, a protein that is encoded by a gene uh, that is belongs to a family of proteins. They're called, um, you know, aptoglobins. There are two of them. Aptoglobin one is totally unrelated to gluten, uh, to uh, zonulin, and aptoglobin 2, that is actually the uh, gene that is linked to, to zonulin. So you can be homozygous for the aptoglobin 1, so you don't make zonulin. You can be heterozygous, so you can have one copy of the zonulin gene, or you can be homozygous for the zonulin gene, so you make two copies. Well, it looks like that one they have two copies are much, much higher risk to develop this problem. So eventually, that's another way to to look at the story there. Um, there. There are, you know, definitely a situation in which, you know, um, if you have a specific sign of symptoms that are being related to gluten exposure, uh, you are definitely more at risk to have a problem with gluten. So this is what we call the case finding. So if you have, you know, an anemia for explain, unexplained reasons, if you have, you know, joint pains and nobody knows what's wrong with you, if you have chronic headaches, uh, if you have, you know, skin rash that we call dermatitis superdeformis, if you have some behavioral issues with no explanation where they come from, 
all these people are, you know, and I can go on and on and on with, you know, miscarriages, infertility, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, they are all these people, they are at risk for gluten-related disorders and will be worthwhile to look into this. And, and I specifically left out some group of behavioral issues that we'll talk about, you know, controversial, um, talking about, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, uh, schizophrenia, autism, you know, here now, the data piling up, uh, pointing at gluten as a possible culprit. But once again, be aware that would be a major mistake if we start trumpeting that, uh, you know, all the people with chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgia, fibromyalgia, or, you know, uh, autism or schizophrenia are all gluten sensitive and therefore they all should go on a gluten-free diet because that will really send a very, you know, uh, inappropriate message and will vilify what could be a safe intervention for the subgroup of individual that will eventually get to their final destination through the gluten exposure. That's a great point, Alessio, because I think there are a lot of people out there saying, well, you've got that particular thing that must be linked to gluten. So off you go, you're off gluten. So a lot of people are routinely taking people off gluten. But I, I do recall you saying, and I've got two questions here, and I know we're running short on time, but I'm going to try and squeeze in these two questions. I, I do recall you saying that zonulin is unique to humans. And that causes leaky gut. Now, in natural medicine circles, we've been talking about leaky gut for many, many years. And the understanding that leaky gut increases permeability and then exposure to undigested or maldigested particles within the gastrointestinal system to the bloodstream and the immune system and so on and so forth. Is it is it still fair to limit people's gluten or is it dangerous to limit people's gluten? I've had people say that unless you've got celiac disease, you don't have to come off gluten. Um, and I've had dietitians argue with me um, saying that if you come off gluten, it's actually dangerous for people. And so where, where, where do you stand on that, Alessio? Well, you know, first of all, <clears throat> again, I was among the skeptical, believing that only people with celiac disease has the business to be gluten-free. And, you know, um, you know, I was, you know, um, taught by my patients that that's not the case. So the existence of other form of gluten reaction, including non-severe gluten sensitivity, I think that's not an object discussion anymore. So people, they know there are other people that can benefit to go on a gluten-free diet, uh, you know, other than people with severe disease. I'm not sure where the statement to go gluten-free is dangerous other than your, your pocket, of course. Um, you know, uh, there. You know, a, a matter of fact, the gluten-free diet is extremely fashionable in the United States, and, and become, you know, if not dangerous, but definitely can lead to, um, you know, a nutritional imbalance, particularly for minerals and and vitamins, if you do this by yourself without the supervision of a knowledgeable dietitian. It's always a good a good thing to consider. Um, and again, um, I, I think that you know, um, you know. Saying that the only people that have to go gluten-free are the people with serious disease, it's, it's really a little bit out of touch with what is the status of the heart of uh, the, the situation of gluten-related disorders. Yeah, great. Wonderful. Last question of this year. Have you been approached, um, whilst you're going to be in Australia, have you been approached to present your information to the medical fraternity here in Australia? No, uh, never been approached. Well, that surprises me. That kills me. Lawrence? I'd love to keep on asking more questions, but I know we're out of time and we have to respect your time, Alessio. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Um, it's, it's been, it's amazing. There's so much more inside your brain and 
for the natural medicine practitioners that are listening to this particular uh, podcast, you really should get on down to the Bioceutical Symposium to have a listen to Alessio. Um, Dr. Perlmutter will be there. Diana Minich will be there. Uh, it's going to be an unbelievable lineup down there at that particular event. Um, for those of you in the public who would love to get into t- in touch with Alessio, he's got a Facebook page. You can, um, I mean, if you just Google search Alessio, you'll see so much. He does have a book called Gluten Freedom. Um, great read, definitely worth getting your hands on and, and understanding more about this particular um, situation. And, um, of course, find him on Facebook, friend him, follow him, do all those sorts of things, and you can keep up to date with what Alessio is doing and how he's changing the world of uh, of uh, understanding around autoimmune disease. So thank you so much, Alessio. Thank you, Damien. Thank you, Lawrence, for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Well, I look forward to hopefully catching up you with you in Australia. And uh, guys, make sure you go to Facebook page. Go to facebook.com slash the wellness guys or the wellness couch. Leave your comments below there. And uh, make sure you check out, out uh, you know, Gluten Freedom too as well. They're a great book. Like us on Facebook while you're there. Share this podcast with your friends and family. Some of the strangers you think need a wellness update. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, please give us a rating and also leave a comment there on iTunes. Until next week, begin creating wellness into your lives. Lead by example. Let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Guy Show. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.